Today, we continue to look at the great call stories of the Bible, exploring how God calls His people and how His people should respond to God's call. Today, we're taking a look at the call of Isaiah. So I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Kind of unusual, Isaiah does not put his call at the beginning of the book, but puts some prophecy and then sort of goes back and picks up how he got into the game. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and, their blind, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and house without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, they will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is fell. The holy seed is the stump. Here ends the reading of God's word. Isaiah is taken up into the presence of God Almighty. And we get a very strange marker at the beginning of this story. It is the day that Uzziah dies. Now, you don't know who Uzziah is, probably. But Uzziah was a king uh, in Israel who was an okay king. He did some good things for Israel. He brought peace and prosperity to the land. But then he got a little bit full of himself. And he goes into the temple and decides to make the temple a little more a temple for his worship. And a little more a temple about his decisions. And he even goes so far as to kick the priest out and do his own sacrifices. As if he is not only king, but he's priest. He, he mistreats the presence of God Almighty. And so God strikes Uzziah with leprosy. He has leprosy and he can't be in the temple. And he can't be in his palace. And he's stuck out in a leper community. And he's still king, but he never really does anything after that. Uzziah is sort of the model for how not to handle the presence of God. And so Isaiah says that on the day Uzziah dies, he's taken up into 
This vision of the presence of God Almighty. Not simply the temple in Jerusalem, which is supposed to be sort of a reflection of God's holy temple, God's holy throne room. But he's actually there, or at least in the vision. Isaiah sees the Lord on his throne, high and lifted up. And the Lord is so big and glorious that Isaiah says even the hedge of his garment, even the edge, the little bit of trim, just fills the place. Fills the place. That's how big and and huge and other God is. And above the Lord are the seraphim. This is really the only place in the Bible we hear about seraphim. These are angels, and they look like humans, but they have six wings. Did you check that in the text? Two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and two to fly. And they praise God, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his, is full of his glory. And when they praise God, the whole throne room shakes and smoke fills the place. Now, what do we do with this kind of Old Testament vision imagery, right? This is not the kind of thing that we typically think about. This is not the kind of vision that we typically have. Uh, Some of you may have experienced some of this in the 60s. But most of us, this is not the general way that our prayer life goes. And so we're not quite sure what to do with this. Is Isaiah actually in, the, in the, uh, the throne room of God? Is he taken up into heaven? It's just, just a vision, just a picture. Are these symbols? Or is, God, is he actually seeing what it's like around the throne room of God? And we're not sure. And Isaiah doesn't really make it clear. He just describes what happens. And so I'm not sure that the point of the text is really whether it's a vision, whether it's actually drawn up, or how much it is... Uh, a real sighting of God or this vision. But what is meant to be portrayed here, and the point that we should get, is this amazing presence and holiness of God. That God is so other that even these seraphim, these angels, have to cover their faces and cover their feet. And all that anybody can just say is holy, holy, holy. Holiness is a word that means something is set apart. As in it's holy, completely different than us. God is other than us. He's not the same as us. And we can't even begin to describe how other He is. Okay, We can't even begin to fully experience God. That's why holy is said three times. You ever said something repeatedly? You ever ever been through something and you just say, wow, wow, wow. You can't even find words to describe it. That's, That's what these angels are saying. Holy. Holy, holy. In fact, it's, it's hard to describe it in English. God is so very, very, very other than us. God is so very, very not us. In fact, that's the point. We can't even give it language. God is so far from us. God is so different than us. We, we can't even begin to describe it. All we can merely say is holy, holy, holy. Now, they say, holy, 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 but what else do they say? They say that the whole earth is full of His glory. So what is glory? Glory is that part of God's holiness that is reflected in creation. It's that part of God's holiness that we can sense, that we can see, that we can grasp, that we can feel. Glory, the word literally just means weighty, weightiness. That we can feel the heaviness of God. And I don't know if you've had those moments in your life where at the birth of a child, at a gorgeous sunset, at beautiful scenery, 
at, a, at, at moments where all these things in your life just seem to come together and you can clearly see God behind it all. Or a time of worship where you're just caught up into the presence of God. That's the glory of God. That's the part of God that's, that's other, but that God allows us to experience. It's the reflection of God's holiness. And when we come to worship, we get some sense of the holiness of God. But really, what our worship is designed to do is to help us experience the glory of God. Whatever little bits of reflection that we, we can pray the Lord's Prayer that's been prayed over generations. We can come to the sacrament. We can sing these hymns and praise songs. And somehow get a little tuned into the glory of God that's all around us during the week. The whole earth is full of it. But we miss it. So we set aside an hour every week to experience it. See what God does. He's so holy, he's so other than us. You would never be able to comprehend God. Except God makes himself comprehensible. God gives himself. He lets you experience a little bit of it. Sense, feel a little bit of his glory. He, he lets, you, lets you see a little bit of what he's doing. And especially in Jesus, right? He condescends, he becomes human. He dwells among us. God is so other than us, and yet he, he comes down in, in so many ways to let us try to experience some of him. So Isaiah is, is caught up. He's witnessing this holiness of God. He's surrounded by the glory of God, and he has the reaction to that true holiness and the glory of God that I think we actually all should have. He panics. He panics. When he's in the presence of this God that is so other than him, and the glory, the presence of this God is just all he can sense, all he can feel around him, he panics. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's overwhelmed by this presence and this holiness. And all he can see is, I'm terrible. I am unworthy. I do not deserve to be in this presence. In fact, I, I belong to a group of people that don't belong in this presence. How could my nation, how could my church, how can the people around me ever deserve to be in this presence? Now, why does he talk about it with your lips? Well, because your lips are a reflection of your heart. In fact, Jesus says, out of, out of the, the, the depths of your heart, your, your mouth speaks, right? Whatever's going on in here comes out here. And so one of the ways to know how your heart's really doing is to look at what comes out of your lips. And we all have to admit, we've said some pretty nasty stuff over the years, right? We've said some pretty nasty stuff in, in, in our anger or in our sadness or in our grief. And Isaiah says, I'm not worthy. I have unclean lips. I've said terrible things. So one of the seraphim comes and gets a coal from the altar and puts it on the lips of Isaiah. He tells him that his guilt is taken away and his sins are atoned for. His guilt. You're not guilty anymore. And you don't have to feel guilty. Your guilt is gone. And atonement, the word atoned is this loaded word. And there's so much theology behind atonement. But it's actually not that complicated of a word. Atonement, you can break it down to at one meant. At one meant. To be made at one. It's fundamentally a relational term that God is saying, I'm, I'm making you at one with me. Yeah, you don't, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But I'm going to do something to make you in a right relationship with me. 
It's like a couple that's split apart that comes back together. God and you and I come back together because of what Christ has done. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. That you and I are worthy. And now we are made worthy because of our relationship. That God healed. And we know what's the ultimate altar. The ultimate altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. Where the sacrifice was made. And you are made clean. You are given atonement. Then the Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And some have seen in the Old Testament that God very often slips into the plural. Did you notice that? Who will God send for us? That there is this sense of trinity and this sense of plurality in God, even in the Old Testament. And Isaiah answers, Here am I, send me. How often do we feel unworthy? When God calls us to things. And we think that because we feel unworthy, we must be unworthy. Right? We think because, Lord, I've I've done stuff. I've been through stuff. My faith is not where it should be. And we think because we feel unworthy, that God can't use us. Or that we're not worthy. We're not the most talented. We're not the most holy. But let me tell you the paradoxical truth. And you guys, you need to hear this. The worst thing you can do with God is feel worthy. You think you should feel worthy when God calls you. It's actually the opposite. If God asks you to do something big for the kingdom and you say, sure, I got this. We got a problem. When there's arrogance, when there's pride, and you think you've got it all together, God has no room to work in your life. It is actually when we feel unworthy that we become most worthy and open to God working in our lives. See, we think it's the opposite. I'm not worthy. And God says, good, let's get started. Our feeling of unworthiness is exactly what we need. We must confess that we are unworthy. We must make the walk that Isaiah makes. From woe is me to here I am. And if you try to go to here I am before you walk through woe is me, then there's going to be problems. You need to know that you're not worthy. In fact, we practice this every Sunday. Did you notice that? This story is the model of our worship. Okay, we come into God's presence. Remember, we had a call to worship and an opening prayer today. And then we move, we we do some singing, just like like the seraphim sing, right? And then we go to confession. We, We are immediately, we're brought into God's presence, and then immediately we realize we are not worthy to come into God's presence. And we confess our sins. We are assured of our pardon, just like the seraphim does. And then God speaks. And God is speaking now, I hope, through my words and through the opening of Scripture. And then we're going to have a response later, a benediction, where you're going to be sent out just like Isaiah is. Every Sunday, we practice the journey from woe is me to here I am. Every Sunday we come in and we go through what Isaiah is going through. This is the model. And we think we need to be so worthy, but God needs us to feel unworthy so that we are ready to truly follow Him. And now, having been through that, we reflect His glory in some way. We experience His glory in worship. We reflect His glory in some way. And suddenly, God really can get to work using our lives. Now, that is all good and interesting, I think. 
But the real difficult part of this passage becomes the message that Isaiah has to give to the people. You notice it's kind of confusing. It's a harsh message. In fact, the three-year lectionary that some pastors preach put this second part of this verse in parentheses. Kind of like, you may not want to cover this section. You may not want to include this. Because Isaiah is to preach to people that they won't understand. That they won't see what he's saying. He's supposed to make their minds dull. Their ears stopped. Their eyes shut. Isaiah asks, rightly so, how long am I supposed to preach this message? And God says, till the cities are destroyed. See, this is early in Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah is going to be a prophet through the exile. And then as they start to return. And Isaiah is preaching at this point before they're taking off into captivity. And God says, no, they've got to go through captivity. You need to preach them and get them ready for captivity. To get ready to lose their land until they are cut down to stumps. Yeah, have you ever been around when a, a, a huge section of forest gets cut down and all you have is stumps left? That's the image that Isaiah gets for Israel. Now why is this message so hard? Why doesn't God just speak clearly and avoid the entire exile incident? Have you ever wanted to know why God doesn't just speak clearly sometimes? Tell me exactly what's going on, Lord. I'm like wondering, you could just solve this with an email. Send me an email, tell me exactly what to do. I will do it. And God says, I'll tell you in six months. Right? Why doesn't God just say it? And, and it's not just an Old Testament thing. Okay, there's this whole incident where Jesus quotes this chapter of Isaiah because the disciples ask him, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? How can you speak to us clearly, but to the rest of the people you speak in parables? And, and Isaiah, and Jesus quotes this, saying that that's the preaching that is necessary. See, what God understands in his wisdom that is beyond ours is that we're not always ready for the whole message. See, what God knows about Israel is they've got to go through the exile till they figure out that they've got to listen to God. See, they've got to go through, woe is me, before they're ready for here I am, send me. They've got to go through that before they're really prepared to listen and follow God. And what God knows is, Isaiah, they're not ready for you yet. They're not ready. They have unclean lips. They're not ready for what I have for them. And they've got to go through some things to prepare for that. And sometimes God does that with us. It's not that Isaiah is going to lie. God is calling Sometimes what grace does is it hardens our hearts. Sometimes what grace does is it makes us unsure. Paul calls grace a stumbling block, right? The Bible is like that too. Sometimes I think people just need to put down the Bible for a little bit if they're struggling with it. Put it down, give it some space, let it breathe, and come back to it with a little different heart. Sometimes when you're praying for things, you've got to just, just set it down for a while. And so, when we come to worship, we're practicing this all the time. We're coming into the holiness of God. We're coming into the glory of God. And God meets us here. No matter where we are, He meets us here. And He moves us from woe is me to here I am. Now, if you follow Isaiah along, you're going to find some really interesting stuff. Because Isaiah is looking not just at this problem that's immediate. 
which is the exile. But Isaiah is also looking further down the road to say, God's got to do something even bigger with this sin problem. And so, Isaiah 9 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, you know these from Christmas, right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In fact, a couple chapters later in Isaiah 11, he will pick up this same stump analogy of everybody being cut down. And he says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch of his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Yet another passage we typically read in Advent leading up to Christmas. Why? Because Isaiah is looking forward to Jesus. What he understands is the atonement is really coming. The atonement is really coming. The real altar of the cross is coming. So the Messiah would be born a baby, would grow up in Israel and bring true atonement for everyone. Jesus would be this answer to the sin problem. And he would humble himself to do that. Humble himself. And church, that's what we have to do. We have to humble ourselves. We have to realize that we're unworthy. Realize that we have said some things we shouldn't have, done some things we shouldn't have. And yet, when you start to realize what Christ has done to save you, you realize it doesn't matter whether you feel worthy or not. If He calls you, He's strong enough to guide you and get you there. That your feeling of unworthiness is exactly what God needs. You must travel the road to humility. And when you understand the amazing grace of God, you will be willing to follow no matter how hard what God is asking you to do may seem. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your humbling of yourself that you would take on the cross for us. And we pray that you would Take us through the journey of woe is me. So that when you call in our lives, we can truly say, here I am, send me. Not of our own strength, but of yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.